Welcome to A Deeper Dive with Pastors Steve Page and Tim Shaw. Our podcast is a conversational journey through the deeper meaning, implications, and applications of God's Word for today's world. Now, it's time to take a deeper dive. Welcome, everyone. My name is Steve Page. And I'm Tim Shaw, and we're glad you joined us for A Deeper Dive. And we're here in session uh, four of our video series um, in the Gospel of Mark, where we really dove into the big issues that moved the religious leaders of Jesus' day, not simply to oppose him, but to plan to kill him. And the decision to kill Jesus came out of a number of consecutive clashes uh, that these religious leaders had in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this last clash revolved around the issue of the Sabbath. Now, it might help folks to understand who the Pharisees and scribes are, since they keep popping up in the scripture there. Uh, Real quick word on them. The Pharisees and scribes were scholars, especially the scribes. They were scholars about the laws of God, and they were strict rule keepers about God's ways. And that's just be, not just because they were uptight people, but because they really thought it was going to bring about something that was so necessary uh, for the world, and particularly for the nation of Israel. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to say that in, in, in the Jewish library of things, they determined that the law of God or the Torah of God contains 613 commandments. And they, they would call the 613 commandments, they use this metaphor, the garden of God, because it's so beautiful and it was so lush and it gave life and all those kinds of things. Now, because these Pharisees and scribes were so committed to living meticulously by these laws, they created what they called a hedge around the garden. Okay, so again, the garden knows those 613 laws. Well, they built a hedge around that garden, which meant that they created more rules and rituals to keep them completely out of range from breaking the laws of the garden. And they didn't want any possibility of breaking them by accident or by ignorance, much less by intention. So this hedge that they created consisted of up to 1,500 additional man-made laws that they added to those 613 commandments, which of course now makes it 2,100 or more laws to follow. And again, they did this because they believed that this would bring about the reign of the Messiah in Israel, it, it, this strict obedience to these laws would actually bring the salvation of Israel and its people. So they had this approach that conformity will save us. And transformation, I guess, in some way, was to come out of that conformity. Uh, but I'd really love to hear you, Tim, how you weigh on this kind of pharisaical approach to bring about the salvation of the nation of Israel. Hmm. As you're talking, I'm remembering a time I was at the uh, Western Wall in Jerusalem and uh, came up to, on this uh, young Jewish man who was, um, uh, they're called phylacteries, mm-hmm. uh, these boxes. He was strapping them to his arm. One, the, one of the phylacteries is right sort of on his bicep and he put another one on his head. And so I just asked him, tell me what that's all about. And well, inside each one of those little boxes is the Torah, mm-hmm. the law of God. Mm-hmm. And what he was doing by wrapping that around his bicep and around his his head was he was putting the word of God close to his heart mm-hmm. and the word of God close to his mind. So still in um, our in the Jewish community, there is this desire to be shaped by the word of God. And so I think that... Uh, which is, which is a very noble pursuit. That's great. Yeah, I was really like, whoa, you know, that that was a challenge to me to as I talked with this young guy. And uh, 
but I think what where it sort of went off the rails um, in the in the first century was when they were stumbling in, like we all can do, into this self salvation effort. Mm. There, as you were saying, they were looking at the ways that by keeping the law was actually going to save them. Mm. And I do love what Tim Keller talks about that there's three ways to save yourself, or try to at least. Uh, two of them are self-salvation methods, and one is the only one that really works. And one of the ways is to be very, very bad, like in the we talked about the par parable of the prodigal son, the one who went off and lived his life in a very wild way. I've taken my stuff, and I'm going to take charge of my life. Well, the, uh, he, and he got lost. He was lost out there. Well, there was another son that was lost, and he got lost by trying to be very, very good. He stayed at home, and he got lost. He was distant from the father's heart. He didn't know his father's heart, just like this younger son didn't know his father's heart. So um, those two self-salvation methods, by being very, very bad or being very, very good, they end up not saving us, which... One of the roles of the law is to be a mirror that's held up to us, that shows us our need. Mm. And so the law sort of is a, it directs us to only one place, and that's to Jesus Christ, so that we acknowledge like, whoa. If I just look at the Ten Commandments, let alone the 2,100 other uh, laws and guidelines that you just described. You know, I can feel a lot of conviction around even those Ten Commandments. You know, is the Lord, Lord my only God? Um, am I telling the truth? Um, do I, am I coveting other people's stuff? I mean, pretty quickly I can go like, whoa, okay, I got some problems. I got some difficulties here going on. But I think the law is partially designed uh, to drive us to Jesus Christ so that we entrust our lives to him. And when we do that, we receive his Righteousness is perfection. And in response to that gift of his forgiveness and grace and his very own righteousness, so that when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ, we live our lives in different ways. So the law of God can be very helpful in guiding us, mm. but it's not in order, we don't follow the law of God in order to establish our relationship with God, but because when we have had our relationship with God established by grace, by a sheer gift of forgiveness, and we receive his righteousness. The way we live our lives is a, a is an expression of gratitude for that. Mm. So we're not trying to save ourselves. We're saved by grace. But we come out of that experience and grow in that experience and um, by the way that we live our lives. You know, our, the, the ethics that we have... It's called an evangelical ethic. It's ethics of response. We don't, we're not trying to be good enough for God so that he'll save us. Mm. Um, but because he saves us by grace, we live our lives as an expression of gratitude by, by following his laws and see the wisdom uh, of, of, those, uh, of those laws. I think of the Ten Commandments in particular. Yeah. And, and and I think that's really important to to point out. It, it you know, the Pharisees weren't wrong <clears throat> in being passionate about God's law. You know, uh, it's a good thing because they do give us wisdom. They they're there to show us where our shortcomings are and why we need continued need of God's grace, um, but also to move us closer to Him, not to move us in more in fear of Him. Um, and and so so laws are you know. Are really really good and 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 we live in a day. I'm bringing this up and highlighting this. In fact, just be quite honest. Is we just live in a day and age where 
right now, it's just a fight for legislation, <clears throat> especially even among the uh, uh, the Christian people and the evangelical church. And there's this big wrestling match to get certain legislation passed. There's there's people who oppose things Christian and they want to get legislation passed. And and and, and we're, we're in this big tug of war um, of trying to legislate proper speech even and and or to silence some speech and and and, and these kinds of things and so you know gosh it's a, it's just a four-way it's a food fight sometimes about all this and 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 so we you know how do we approach this a bit uh, a bit more wisely as christians now you know uh laws are really good because because it does make for a better society you know uh, think of child labor laws antitrust laws racketeering laws anti-human trafficking laws these laws really help and so we're not saying that legislation or being involved in, in legislative things are, are not a good thing but you know sometimes sometimes they they bring unintended consequences and this is parallel and i'm going to tell this story only because it parallels what goes on with the pharisees uh, not too long ago, the city council of Philadelphia uh, decided that, hey, you know, kids were getting way, way too overweight and, and unhealthy from sugary drinks, and that was driving up healthcare costs. So they wanted to change that. Two excellent goals make kids healthier, bring down healthcare costs. Excellent. So to dissuade the unhealthy activity, they imposed a 30% tax on sugary drinks. So some time goes by, and sure enough, the sales of sugary drinks in Philadelphia decline by 25%. And so the people behind this law felt this tremendous victory. However, as economists are keen to point out, it created something they didn't see coming. Yes, the sales of sugary drinks did decline in Philadelphia, but the consumption of sugary drinks by the people who lived there remain the same as they did before the tax. Why is that? Because people would drive to other places outside of Philly to buy their drinks. And here's the kicker. This is the thing that nobody saw coming, is that when they went someplace else to buy their drinks, they're going, hey, uh, I also need eggs. I need milk. I need some cereal. So they started to buy their groceries at these places where they can buy their drinks. And what happened is that they ended up, this this, this new law ended up closing up grocery stores, uh, stores in Philadelphia especially among poor areas, thus damaging the economy of the people. And, and so, you know, the laws, and I tell that story because, one, it's kind of crazy, but, but the laws of the Pharisees, you know, they, they couldn't see the, the, the unintended consequence that if they followed these strict Sabbath laws, it would leave hungry people hungry. As I pointed out in the video, you know, it would have left Jesus and his disciples hungry on the Sabbath, and it would have left that crippled man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, a crippled man. You know, and, and so there's this unintended consequence of like you were trying to bring about God's best. But what else are we crippling in the process? Um, so legislation does have its place. I'm, we're not saying, but sometimes when we apply like a chainsaw to everything, um, it, it can kind of bring about some unintended bad consequences. And we have to ask the hard question, you know, does it really bring about what God intends? You know, this is this is what's really uh, crucial to understand. Did you want to comment on any of that crazy story or anything else? That is a crazy story. Um, yeah, I think it's a lot of it's motivated by good intentions, um, and that, but it has unintended consequences of uh, shutting down neighborhood markets and stores and hurting the economy and hurting the health of uh, people in a community because they don't access to to the food. So sometimes it's difficult for people, that, even with good intentions, to think through the consequences of all those um, mm -hmm. 
uh, legislative decisions. I do believe that there is a place of uh, legislation in our communities. We're part of a, uh, a politic, a community of people, and we 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 are a nation ruled by laws. And so I think those can be really life giving mm-hmm. as sort of boundaries. Um, I'm glad there's lanes on the highway. I'm glad there's speed limits. I have a little bit of trouble sometimes with the, <laughs> keeping the you know the first number of the fastest speed on the island six instead of a seven. Um, <laughs> but so I'm really grateful for that. I need those kind of uh, hedges, boundaries um, to uh, to you know have a four way stop. Thank goodness, you know we, it would be a mess if, uh, if we weren't like having some regulation and regulation in our life together. Um, so I, I think it's, I think that the people are involved in 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 the political life, our legislators. Uh, we need to pray for them. We need to come alongside them and support them and encourage them as they seek to make good decisions about very complex situations uh, and legislate that. But I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that um, there there is more to uh, transformation of a community than uh, just that. It's important. Yeah, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. Don't do that. But is there more that um, we need to to do to be agents of transformation in our world? And I would say, yes, it is. Yes, there are. Yeah, and because, you know, uh, laws, legislation um, do help modify and restrain really bad behavior. And that's really, really good thing. But as a people of God, do we want more than just restrained behavior? You know, do we want, do we not want to see transformed lives? I'll tell you what, uh, it's probably, it's, for a lot of us, if we're honest, sometimes I feel like I'll just settle for a restrained behavior. Um, because, because to really win people to Jesus and disciple them up into the way of Christ, the life of Christ, the image of Christ, who has the mind and heart and passion uh, of Jesus towards the world, that is such a tough road. It's a lot, a very hard work. And sometimes, for me personally even, I feel like, you know, uh, let's go fight for stronger legislators that's like hitting the easy button you know and of course of course you know the thing about uh, with, with political laws is that once a new political regime gets in there boom boom they can flip flop and those and then we're up and fighting again you know but even if you had bad laws passed if people were like jesus you know like 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 my you know my wife my daughter they lived in an age where abortion was legal it was legal but for them that wasn't going to happen that wasn't going to happen. And, and, and so uh, because of who they were and what they valued because their lives were oriented and, and filled with the mind and heart and passions and goals of Jesus, right? And, 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 and this is the kind of thing that we have to get at as Christians to never lose sight of that, that deeper, greater transformation than just our laws, but the transformation of the lives of others, and that's why I like you know the uh, the Congo Initiative and their their tagline there. If you can repeat it for us, that's just so essential. The Congo Initiative is working in the Eastern Congo. Um, we have a variety of ministries, including a university and a counseling center and a couple of elementary schools. But the the core theme is um, people are being transformed in order to be agents of transformation. Mm-hmm. Transformed to transform is uh, what what the Congo Initiative is focused on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, policies, laws, legislation, great things that restrain really poor behavior, but only Christ can transform the human heart. I, I don't know. I could be wrong. I've never seen a law transform the soul, you know, but, uh, um, 
But I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind, you know, so we don't end up fighting the wrong fight and then creating the wrong enemies, you know, because this is another big problem in this legislative food fight is, is people aren't just coming at it from a different perspective and what's best for our country. You know, it's, it's, it's much more sinister, you know, it's labeling the other person as, as not just a different view, but as an enemy view, you know, and it becomes uh, unfortunate that way. And, and uh, how, how, how sometimes we join that, that kind of thing. Um, so what do we do as Christians, since this story revolves so much around the Sabbath, uh, I think it might be helpful for us to talk a little bit about, um, since we're talking about transformation as well, how, how do Christians in the modern day live with this ancient, beautiful, wonderful Sabbath um, instruction that comes out of the Jewish faith? How about for you? Well, I think it's a challenge. I've, I've found it a challenge throughout my life to be a, a Sabbath keeper and whatever that might mean. Um, I, I like to work. I like to be busy. I like to be active. Um, and Sabbath keeping doesn't necessarily mean inactivity, but um, beginning to, more and more, I've seen it more as a gift that God has given to us um, to take a day where we um, set down a lot of the things that we're doing in order that we might be able to take up um, what uh, more of God, more time with God. So uh, Sabbath keep. Sabbath keeping, like really all the, the the Ten Commandments, are gifts to us, and I think it's the gift of a Sabbath. Um, you know, I'm in the middle of a sabbatical. I'm taking an, an, and I know you'll be taking a sabbatical. I think one of the things that I've learned about sabbaticals, which comes from the same word that the word Sabbath comes from, is that when I set down my work to focus on other things uh, in my life, other ways of growth and development which is an incredible gift. I'm so grateful for this incredible gift that's given to um, some of us on uh, the staff of our church to take these mm. uh, Sabbath uh, breaks every seven years. Um, what I've discovered the times that I've done that is I, I, just, I discovered some things that are really important, and that is um, I'm irreplaceable because I'm me, and nobody else can bring me to the work of of first prize. But I also discovered this really other freeing thing is that even though I'm irreplaceable, I'm not indispensable. Mm. That the world does not come to an end because I am not here. Uh, it goes on and thrives, maybe uh, excels. I saw some areas of my ministry last fall that when I was away from it, man, people stepped up in lots of really incredible ways. They grew because I wasn't there. And uh, um, so Sabbath keeping reminds me that I'm a created being. I'm an embodied being. I'm a finite being, mm. a dependent being, a, dependent, a person dependent on God. And uh, so you don't need to like step away from your work for three months, but can I step away from my work for a morning, mm. a day? Can I turn my phone off for an hour? Can I take a digital Sabbath? Can I put my phone to bed at nine o'clock and not pick it up until I've spent time with God in the morning? Um, I, I think it's really challenging for some of us. Mm. Um, but it, it, the Sabbath 
Car- the Sabbath is about carving out time to be with God, to sit in silence with God, to be in his word, to listen to what God is saying to us, to to let go, to give God the things that we're anxious about and worried about and and don't know the answers to or how to or struggling to figure out. Can we just uh, rest in his presence? Mm. And I think that's why I think a uh, Sabbath and Sabbath keeping practices, um, there's lots of great resources on that, um, uh, is a life-giving thing. It's a gift to us. It's not, um, I'm not doing that in order to earn my relationship with God. Right. It's given to me as a gift because I already have a relationship with God. That's a, that's a gift of grace because of what Jesus did for me, not because of what I did for God. So... Yeah, I like I like how you put that. We're we're not in this. We're irreplaceable because nobody's going to be another Tim Shore and another Steve Page. But we're not um, indispensable. I was just thinking of a, a quote by uh, former pastor Eugene Peterson. He says, "When when you hear a pastor saying he's always busy, look for an ego problem." <laughs> 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 and I tend to think that's true. Um, and the thing is, I want to encourage too, because Sabbath has been a big part of my life. You know, every Friday I take Sabbath, and I've been, I've been doing this probably, my gosh, since the early 90s. Um, on Fridays, I go up for silent solitude and prayer. And um, it becomes, it's it's important because it, it, it creates an environment for, for transformation of my heart and mind. I mean, all week long, I'm so driven and, you know, carried on by different things. You don't realize how affected you are just from picking up and watching the news, listening to the news, and how that dented this and dented that in your soul, you know, that needs to be banged out again. And so going into Sabbath and just really kind of being with God and, and in meditation and, and silence and, and then being with God, say, Lord, you know, um, is there something I need to repent of today? You know, is there something that you want me to change is something you want me to say, something you want me to do, you know, this kind of a thing. Uh, well, we're very vulnerable, uh, I, I think, on the sex. So so it is a delight. See, that's, I know for some people, like, oh, I don't, you know, that sounds pretty heavy. I'm like, no, it's a delight for me. You know, and my wife finds it delightful because every time I come out of Sabbath, you know, it's just like, oh, this is this is my husband. Here he is. We just lost him for six days, you know, but uh, in his hurried world. But you become a different person and, 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 and gain a different perspective because it's so easy Again, you know, going back to how how the the Pharisees were thinking, they're so angry at the world, and you know, they're just they're angry at all the sin around them, and they want all these sinners to stop doing what they're doing and 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 get it right. And with Sabbath and trust, see, Sabbath makes you trust God to do everything. I, mean, I have a, I'm going to take Sabbath tomorrow. I have about ten thousand things on my desk to do. Okay, and what Sabbath does in that moment for me is I have to trust God. That it'll it'll get done, it'll get done, and and it, it will get accomplished. What needs to be accomplished. I love that fact that you come back from your day of solitude and Dine goes, "Oh, there you are." Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a that's a beautiful illustration of what I think um, we're both trying to say here is that it's about a restorative experience with God. I'm not trying to like get God right his a relationship with Him. I've got one. And um, I, it's why why am I not taking advantage of it? Sometimes mm-hmm. you know he's he's there and available, and he wants. But I I need to slow down. I need to let go of things and think like, okay, it's uh, I'm not irreplaceable. This 
thing can go on um, without me. Uh, but I find my it deepened my identity in 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 my relationship with God when I step away and say, okay, I'm saying no to my phone. I'm saying no to these, um, but the, all of the list of things on my to do list. I just am not going to get it all done right now. I may never get it all done. I, I, um, but so I, th I think it's a very healthy uh, practice, and yeah. uh, I'd encourage. Uh, a book that I mentioned in a recent sermon um, by John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you're looking for um, a resource to get started on thinking about Sabbath keeping, I recommend that one to anybody who's uh, going like, man, my life is just running at a pace. It's too high. And uh, I can see the, the effects of it in my life. I can see it in the effects in my relationships. So the uh, John Mark Comer the ruthless elimination of hurry. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that. It's yeah, it's that quote out of from Dallas Willard. You know, and and uh, how how central that is. And again, I, I want to reiterate this point. Reiterate this point um, about how yeah, in this Sabbath, you made a great point. You're not trying to get at something. You know, you, you, it's for me at least. I sit and I recognize who is there with me, who's been trying to get at me. <laughs> you know, and and I and I, I I awaken to the presence of God, who's always been here. You know, my ears might have been turned off, and my eyes might have been blind to Him. You know, and 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 the, the, the probably the most common posture I take is I lay down with my arms open. I often sit in these tide pools along the ocean, you know, where nobody's around anywhere in these non-tourist areas. And I'll, I'll just sit there with my arms open, wordless, because I'm not trying to get at anything, you know, and it's just letting the sense of God and his beauty, because this is one of the things that the Pharisees really miss, is the Pharisees were, the Sabbath was made to delight in things, to delight in God, to delight in, in each other, in the family and in the community. You know, it's the day they got together at the synagogue, but it's not like they just went and then took off. I mean, they gathered as a people and they delighted in each other. And and if you read some of the things that, that the Orthodox Jewish people do on a Sabbath and how the wife will praise the husband and the husband will praise, praise the wife by reading Proverbs 31 about her, you know, this kind of, and she reads Psalm 1 about the wise man, you know, about him, and the kids get to see this, and, and it's like, wow, family's restored, it, it's, it's, it's given its proper compass, its, its orientation, you know, uh, on how to proceed in life, and, and, and so this is, this is why these things are so important, and this is why this story is just so antithetical. Here it is on a Sabbath, they're angry because Jesus healed, but they're not, they can't even see that on the Sabbath they're planning to kill. Hmm. That's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, I do think when we fall into this, this, this strategy of trying to save ourselves, um, we try to save ourselves with our work, you know, can't stop working, you know, I have to work. We're really trying, it's become an idol. We've taken something that's really good. Uh, and made it an ultimate thing, mm. you know, and that's what an idol is. I mean, sometimes it's, an idol can be something that's really bad and destructive, but you take a really good thing like work or relationships or family or, um, you know, sports or whatever it is, and if you make it an ultimate thing, the thing that you put your whole weight of your life down on to save you, um, you may not be consciously aware of thinking that I'm trying to save myself right now, but that's what we're doing when we... Um, 
when we when we don't have boundaries around uh, our work? What do we do? expect our work to provide uh, uh, our understanding of who we are, or any other thing other than God? Um, when I when my when my identity is rooted in God and the and the gift of His grace in my life, mm. then I can see how the other things that are in my life that are good gifts like relationships and work and and all the other things how they fit. But I don't try to put my weight down on all those things. I end up just crushing those those things when I take good things and make them ultimate things. The only ultimate thing really is is God, and I think that's what. Um, happens when we try to save ourselves, mm. um, which is what uh, a lot of us do and uh, what, the, what the Pharisees are trying to do. Yeah. So so let's, you know, as we kind of head into our last segment here about, you know, what was going on in this story and, and what are some challenges that we see, you know, how do we see ourselves in the Pharisees? I mentioned in the video that the Pharisees are not some kind of strange human anomaly. You know, they are us. We all have this kind of pharisaical streak to save ourselves or, or, or to want other people to conform to what we think is best in, in, in this world, you know. And um, uh, what was heartbreaking is, is you know, Jesus, is, we, what's interesting, we see in this story right at the end there, as Jesus looks at them in the synagogue, it says he was very angry. You know, the word can be translated as furious. But it also says he was deeply distressed. He was grieved. Actually, it's probably a better translation. He was grieved. He wasn't gleeful here, you know, wasn't being haughty in his anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart. And the, the tragic thing about the Pharisees, as much as they wanted certain things, they were just not open to change, that I could be wrong here. I could be wrong here. And I know we all, we all think we're open to change, you know, but I'm going to read a, a quick statistic. The odds of making a change in your life even in when, when you're facing a life-threatening illness, is only one, one in nine, about 11%. See, this is drawn from a longitudinal study of people who were diagnosed with early-stage heart disease, early stage. They're given clear information about where they're headed, the concrete steps that they can take to, to prevent an early demise, and, and all these, these steps that were laid out were, were challenging, but all very doable. So you got those three things going on. Yet, only one in nine out of all these people made a change to their lifestyle. So even when death is at their door, <laughs> they were just not open to change. You know, what is it about us that makes us, you know, just so resistant to change? And what have you seen over the years and in, uh, in your own life and others? Well, I think it's, um, we might have touched on this before, but um, it's got to be more, more than my head has got to be, because I can understand that. I can, the doctor says this, this, right. and this. I get it. Okay, got it, got it. But how how is the motivational center of my life, my heart, changed? Um, that is um, that. I think that begins with just simply some honesty about the fact that um, either I don't think I need to change. Um, but I think being open to change and being able to say, I need to really examine these things. Um, sometimes it can seem so overwhelming to make changes mm -hmm. because we're trying to accomplish it all in one. Like you think about Sabbath keeping. Maybe you don't uh, go like, okay, I'm, I'm doing a digital Sabbath this Friday, no phone all day long. 
maybe you just say like, I'm going to shut my phone off until noon, or I'm not going to pick it up until 10 in the morning. It's taking small steps that helps me move towards something that I know in my head that I need to do. Um, and I think by doing that, but by having the experience of doing even a small step, my motivations can change. I can go, whoa. You know, I, I can go, doctor and say, you need to be, you need to be walking an hour every day. You know, and I said, okay, I get it. Yep. I, I, you told me how much I weigh, you know, you showed me my blood pressure, you know? Yeah. But until I actually, okay, maybe get a buddy and say, okay, you want to walk a couple of days a week or ride bikes, our bikes, our bikes together. Um, but once you start doing it, then I've gone from just thinking about it mm -hmm. and agreeing with it to, um, to actually having the motivational center of my life shaped mm -hmm. when I go like, I got to do this. I love doing this. You know, I love that time with God that I've carved out. I love that one-hour walk. I, I can't imagine a day without it. So I think sometimes it's it's like acting mm -hmm. on what I've been I know is the right thing to do, maybe a a, a doable goal, mm -hmm. and then a little larger goal to grow. But I think it has to do with how do I how has my motivational center changed? Even though I agree, yes, I should do these things. Yeah, uh, that's actually a good point. Like small steps of change instead of going for the one big of one gigantic transformation. You know, uh, coming from it from a a psychological viewpoint, you know, um, change is difficult because change is often anxiety provoking because the, the brain doesn't like a lack of homeostasis. And when you call me to change, you're asking me to shake up my homeostasis, you know, you're, and, and which is an intuitive wrong thing I want to do. I don't want to do that. You know, I want to keep things the way they are. And I forget how the saying goes exactly. You know, I'd rather live with the devil I know than, than, than take a risk on the one I don't, you know, this kind of a thing. And, and it's an odd thing, but even for myself, I'm not just pointing a finger at somebody else. Um, my wife has always been right about the things that I needed to change from early on in our marriage. But sometimes it took me 10, 15 years to agree with her, you know? So, so I want to call out that sometimes there's just stubbornness and arrogance and, you know, that um, I'm already where I need to be. Thank you very much, you know? Uh, and, and, and so we just kind of ended there. All right. Well, um, again, are you going to ask something? Well, I was going to ask, I'd be interested to say, uh, can you think of something that she said, like, it, that took a couple of years to? Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing real quick that comes off the top of my head is like, you know, why do you always drill me like you're a DA and I'm on the stand? <laughs> I said, what are you talking? I'm just asking you questions. No, you're not. You're drilling me. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm on the witness stand. Mm -hmm. And so it took me so long to figure that out. Like, gosh, I do, I come off harsh. I don't, I'm not coming off as I'm in as if I'm in a conversation. I'm, I'm coming off like I'm I'm trying to nail her, mm -hmm. you know? And and that that radically changed things when I got the heck mm -hmm. out of the, the uh, lawyer position. You know, I have been thinking about this question that I heard at this uh, leadership conference that I attended in London a couple of years ago, where the question he encouraged us to ask, Pete Winter is the person I'm thinking of. He said that when you think of the context of our work, you know, tell me what it's like to be led by me. Do we have the guts to ask our colleagues right. that question? 
So it's sort of like um, mm. with your wife. Tell, what is it like to be married to me? Mm -hmm. I mean, even initiating that, that's kind of a scary conversation. But I mean, praise God for dying. You know, she served it up <laughs> without even you asking. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, what is it like for me to be married to you? Or what is it like? Mm. What is it like to be led by me? What is it like for me to be a, your brother? You know, mm -hmm. am I willing to look at those questions? Because sometimes we're not aware of what, um, how we... Yeah, I, I how think how people experience us. The best transformation does come through the harder questions we ask ourselves or leave ourselves open to by others. And and not too long ago, I, I sent out a, a, um, a questionnaire to the people I work with in the church that, that I you know, help lead over all these different ministries. And I just asked them, you know, basic, not just that one question, but my think four or five others. What's it like to be led by me? What can I change? You know, and uh, yeah, it's a risky thing to do. And uh, but what's my desire? to be a transformed person or remain who I am who might be doing an okay or maybe not so good job, blind to what really needs, like God wants to transform. Uh, so so that, that becomes very, very crucial. That's a great question to ask. What's it like to be led by me? What's it like to be my friend? What's it like to be my coworker? <laughs> you know, uh, there. I, let's put that there as we finish up. There's a real dare for folks to try that out this week in their home and, and, and whatnot, okay? But again, folks, you know, we want to encourage you to to move towards, you know, transformation. That's what Jesus was trying to get at. Even with the Pharisees, remember, you know, he died for them. He didn't just get angry at them and, you know, throw them to the curb and forget about them. They're not coming with us, so I'm leaving them behind. You know, that's not it at all. And, and in fact, we do see later on in the scriptures in the book of Acts, I believe, there's some places where it says some Pharisees came to Christ, you know, so um, or, or came to be believers. And, and, and so God, God wasn't done with them as stubborn as they were. And I want to encourage you folks to, as you look at your world and you, and you, and you watch another newscast or you listen to a, another angry podcast or read the paper or whatever it is, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you. The world is not as God intended. Definitely not. Um, but can I urge you, my brothers and sisters, to not just seek to make things illegal Seek to make them unthinkable. To make things illegal, you just need a really big rule book. But to make things unthinkable, you have to help others become a different person. And that only can happen as we've been transformed to become a different person. So again, as I said, even in the video, that society we seek, the community we seek, the church we seek, the family we seek, doesn't start with, the change doesn't start with them. It starts with me. So may you enjoy uh, this week in the Lord and may he show you through your Sabbath um, the things that he loves about you, cherishes about you, and maybe some of the things that he wants still to transform in you. God bless and be in peace. <laughs>